Hello and welcome to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm Ed Shanafee, I'm your host, and this week I'm really honored to have a legend in our industry, Dave Fish, Harvard men's tennis coach for over 40 years. Dave has given his life to our industry. He's worked collegiately with the NCAA and now recently retired working with UTR. But what's interesting about our conversation today is how Dave sees the world of tennis and the world as a whole progressing after COVID-19 and after our social unrest. How will tennis be a part of that recovery? And how will tennis change? How it will become more localized? And how from juniors to collegiate to professional players, life will change after COVID-19. Without further ado, here's Dave Fish. Well, folks, welcome to the Beyond the Baselines podcast, and uh, this week we were really honored to have with us the coach for 44 years of Harvard University, Dave Fish. Dave, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's great to have you on. And in these odd times, uh, I was doing a little research, and I noticed that back in your, I think while you were playing, um, there were two of the four years that Harvard didn't play finals uh, it was back in those ages, and, and here we are this year not playing a final, of, of course. Uh, can you take us back to that and what, what all that was about? Yeah, it was, uh, it was deja vu all over again right now with this COVID episode. Uh, the Harvard team this year was, uh, was on its, one of its best roles in recent history with our new coach, uh, Andrew Rube, who played for me. And then suddenly the season was interrupted. Same thing happened back in 1970. Um, during my, I think it was my freshman year, actually 1969, um, the uh, invasion of Cambodia um, just caused all the social unrest. And um, we had sort of been used to going to class, walking by the um, these very um, simple homemade displays by the students for a democratic society saying that, see, you know, the government's lying to us. All these terrible things are happening in Vietnam. And we kind of went on about our ways as athletes and kind of smirked a little bit. And a month later, we found out that this, all this was true and the university shut down. We had a meeting in Harvard Stadium and, uh, and the entire student body voted to go on strike. So we never wow. took exams. And then the following year, uh, I think it was the following year that the, um, that the um, four students at Kent State were killed. It was no provocation, except they were protesting um, peacefully. Right. So once again, we went on strike. So in terms of social unrest and social disruption, I've sort of seen a little bit of this movie before, although none of us ever anticipated something of this magnitude right now that would come on this fast and, uh, and have that much impact on society. And now we're all, all of us in different parts of life are sort of imagining what happens, how do we live with this? How do we cope with this? And, and more specifically in a sport that we love, what happens to tennis in something like that? So it's a, it's a very interesting time for a lot of um, thought discussions and thought leadership. And uh, so I look forward to this conversation. Yeah, and that brings me to a question that I had outlined for a little later, but maybe I'll, I'll ask it right now. Uh, COVID obviously you know, stopped the NCAA uh, March Madness, which is a, a major revenue source for collegiate athletics 
and as well, it, it, it may affect or probably will affect the autumn football season, another uh, major revenue source for collegiate athletics. I have seen stories that uh, universities, colleges across the nation are actually cutting tennis teams, unfortunately. And uh, I just wanted to get your opinion on that and your take on that. Well, it's interesting. I think that sometimes um, a crisis gives people an excuse to do something they've been looking to do anyway, just to pair off some things and to be able to put more money into a basketball or football, et cetera. But, but curiously, uh, in a more promising way, I was on a call with <clears throat> NCA uh, people and coaches and administrators, um, athletic directors, mm-hmm. and they actually said that the, that the tone of the conversation was much more, um, see, I'm going to save X amount of money if I cut the tennis program. But that really doesn't cost a heck of a lot of money. I'd rather begin to look at the luxuries that we've permitted ourselves in these revenue sports, you know, these extravagant salaries for football coaches, um, multiple coaches, uh, trainers, sports psychologists, um, you know, PR stuff, and, and begin to trim off a lot of the fat from those before we actually take away uh, sports. And right. the other thing the NCA did was they turned down a request by some of the mid-majors who were asking, can we reduce the number of teams um, that are needed to, feel, to, to qualify as a Division I program? So that number is 16. And we all felt that if you pare that down and let them just focus their attention on football, and basketball, the revenue sports, it's going to make it, uh, it's going to change college athletics forever, probably for the worse. Right. So we are delighted to see the NCAA stand up and say, no, we're not going to reduce that limit. Uh, and so I think I think we actually have a chance to to survive this, but I think the impact on the seasons and budgets and the kind of national play that we had gotten used to national travel, I think is going to be severely um, changed. I don't want to necessarily use the word cut back mm-hmm. because I actually think we're sitting at a at a once in a generation time to correct some of the design flaws that have caused tennis not to work as well in the United States. Uh, as it does in some other countries. So, so as, as Winston Churchill said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Always going back to the, the British and, 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 and how they... Uh are part of tennis. I, I had just uh, texted you a, a bit ago back a picture of the U.S. team at Wimbledon in 1920, and there's the Harvard uh, sweater and a Yale sweater next to Bill Tilden. And going back to those years, Harvard and Yale both played major parts in establishing uh, tennis here in the United States, and and I, and I believe they were heavily um, a part of the, of, the, of the start of the Davis Cup. And, and did you want to comment on that? Because Harvard played a major role in that competition. Yes. Well, it, well, it, it was really interesting. Um, most people don't know this, but uh, it was uh, the Harvard Lawn Tennis Association was, um, was founded in, I believe it's 18, uh, um, 18, 9, 1883. And the same people, Dr. James Dwight, who was known as the father of American tennis, uh, actually founded with the same people, founded the U.S. LTA, the United States Lawn Tennis Association, four years later. 
Mm-hmm. So they, so Harvard people have had a huge history in the development of the game and, and the sort of leadership in the game. And then um, some years later, um, uh, um, Dwight Davis, after whom the Davis Cup is named, um, was on the Harvard team and they put together a group and challenged a group in England and said, look, let's have the first um, uh, basically transatlantic international competition. And he, so he went to Shreve Crump and Lowe, the famous jewelers in Boston, ordered a very extravagant trophy that he, uh, that he donated. And the Harvard players were, were the people that won the first Davis Cup match against um, the British. And, and 100 years later, curiously, when James Blake had just um, turned pro after playing on our team, mm-hmm. um, 100 years later, he's a, a practice member of the Davis Cup squad. And you talk about societal change is never uh, before would an African-American have had an opportunity to play back in those, those early days. Well, and so the history of, of tennis is, is very much parallel to the social change in the United States. And it's, and it's interesting, but Harvard people played a role. And now we have lots of interesting people like Larry Scott, who's the commissioner of the PAC 12, mm-hmm. um, who was an all American at Harvard, uh, David Benjamin, who basically created what we now see as the modern day intercollegiate tennis association. Um, number of people that have been really involved and care about the development of tennis. And so it, it's been fun as a Harvard coach to be only the third coach um, since 1920 and, um, and see the development. And, and, and then today to continue on seeing what each of us can do to add to the future of tennis, because of course you and I are, very grateful for the kind of opportunities that we've had in the world of tennis in a way that's changed our lives and changed the kind of people that we met. And we want to make sure that that's available for people in the future. Right now, Harvard in its entire history is that only it's four coaches. It's, it's having its fourth yep. coach right now. And he, he played for you. I, um, but you, you replaced um, Jack Barnaby. Um, mm-hmm. Now you played for Jack as well. Yes. And, and he was a, a character I, I understand of the sport. Can, can we talk about him a little bit and how he mentored you towards coaching? Cause I think you were thinking of another career at one point and then decided to go into coaching. I was, I was, as I said, the, 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 my term at Harvard, those four years was a pretty upside down time of, of uh, society. And so we were, people were experimenting in everything. Um, and, and, you know, uh, we could go back and we all kind of feel it's a miracle that we got through. Um, but at that time, Jack Barnaby was kind of a bit of a father figure for me. I had uh, had a wonderful dad who provide for us, but he was not, He'd grown up without a father, and I really didn't have someone that I identified with closely. And so for many of us in that uh, term, time of social unrest, Jack Barnaby was really kind of a lighthouse. He was a person that didn't judge us by the length of our hair um, uh, or our political views. He just he talked about coming out to tennis. He said it was more fun to learn to do something um, well than it was just to do it uh, in a mediocre way. And he represented values and standards uh, at a time when the usual sort of social mores were changing rapidly. And a lot of us counted on him to just be 
we could go out for our two or three hours of practice every day and we'd have something that kind of was a was a north star for us so i was very lucky some people didn't didn't get along with jack but he was a marvelous um coach and practitioner he's a beautiful writer wrote a number of books in squash and tennis and and also was the first uh, person in the, the as the president of the u.s pro tennis association to work toward having standards for the pros and he felt that was very important if tennis was ever to progress so so we have a nice history of the people that that came before me and now i'm delighted that that my former player andrew rube who was our captain in 1995 um and played for four years on the pro tour and then um and then came back and was my assistant for about 11 years before um, taking over the reins and so we have a fourth generation harvard person that, that we're delighted to have and and, and the tradition continues. It's fantastic. I mean, what a tradition it is uh, going all the way back to the Davis Cup and uh, the founding of it and being parts of the U.S. teams back in the 20s. Um, it, being a coach at Harvard, and, and it's funny, um, I, I follow Tommy Amaker as a Dukie. He was uh, coach sure. assistant for, I think, nine years maybe. Um, yeah. But I, I watched – Tommy and and his 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 success there is 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 fantastic. Take us through uh, a, a coach's day, if you will, at Harvard University. I'm sure it's the same for most universities, but Harvard in Cambridge there. How does the how, you have a wonderful tennis uh, facility there now? I just I was just there, but take us through a day uh, as the Harvard tennis coach. Well, it 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 evolved so much over the course of my 44 years there. So back then, tennis was a much less formalized system of competition. Um, juniors were playing with college players in summer events. There were open tours, etc. <clears throat> so college was not as hyper-organized as it is now. Now we live in a world where Division One teams only play Division One teams. Division Three teams play Division Three teams. They each have their national championships. They go for bragging rights. Recruiting is a big part of the world, um, whether you're Division One or Division Three. So it's a very different um, uh, it's a very different world, and it involved lots of it for the better, and lots of it not for, so much for the better. Um, we ended up. Um, I think every coach recognizes that if you don't start with some pretty good talent, no matter how good a job you do coaching. Um, that may not still uh, translate into into winning programs, right. and so it's it ramped up the amount of time that we had to spend on recruiting, um, and and over time we sort of evolved. I think it's like uh, the, the Patriots a little bit. They were always trying to look for the right fit to their program, not just the best player. And so our way of looking at what what was our real role as educators and coaches at Harvard? Our job was to bring talented people who, when it came time for me to write a letter of recommendation for someone for law school or medical school or a job, mm-hmm. I would be really proud of that. I would be proud that I had helped the young person who might not otherwise have come to Harvard. I was proud to have that person be a graduate. And so uh, Andrew and I and Jack Barnaby, we all looked at um, – looked at it through that lens is that um, first of all we want to bring people who belong at Harvard and second of all we want to compete like heck and we want to be just as good as we can and so so we were privileged to have a lot of teams that went on to a national level and and really did some things that most Ivy League teams had never done so so we were all proud of the 
tradition that we created and, and then equally proud of what those people become afterwards. And in the same way that Duke graduates are proud of their people like Tommy, you know, Tommy mm-hmm. is a, is a superstar at Harvard. He's just a, he's a wonderful, good person and charismatic and has brought a lot of people to Harvard whose families would never even known about Harvard otherwise. And he's done it uh, in, in a, in a highly creditable, uh, honorable way. And so as coaches, you're always proud that your fellow colleagues are also doing the same thing that you've tried to do, um, to simply be representative of the overall sense of excellence that Harvard tries to represent, as does all other colleges. But we just try to make the best of what our institution means and then try to embody those values in the people that we help come there. And I know you're a, a big part of the UTR um, rating system, and you're one of the figureheads there. How how do you see the UTR developing American players as we move forward? Because I know that's become a big part of recruiting is UTR. Um, how do you see it developing players as we move forward with it? Yeah, well, it's a wonderful question. I'm glad you asked it, actually, because <clears throat> while UTR um, in its essence is really a metric for judging the level of the quality of play of every player on the planet. Um, it's real uh, embodiment that the, the benefits for American tennis would be to bring the benefits of a system like there is in France. Um, it just I'll briefly describe the French system. They basically have every player in the country has a rating as opposed to a ranking. And that rating is based on the quality of that person's wins. And so they have an ability to have tournaments that uh, is what we might call a staggered entry or a rolling qualifying round where they might have a tournament draw that looks that's 11 pages long. And the weakest players in a club or an area challenge in at early rounds and whoever wins moves on to play a player at a later round who only drops into the event at that time. And that tournament might go on for a month, a month and a half. And on the last weekend, people might come in and be playing for $4,000 worth of prize money, only entering that event in the quarterfinals. And so the French system produces actually 12 times more players per capita than the United States system. And it not only produces world-class players decade after decade over the last 60 years, but it also is welcoming and encouraging and affordable uh, and local for all the rest of the people. And that's really what would cause American tennis to have a a renewal if we could not only produce more American players um, of a higher level that could play in college, but also create more players of having a great experience in the clubs. And Mm -hmm. so essentially, um, because of the success of our college system, the college system operates largely independently from from the junior aspirational um, pathway. And so when you get to 15, 16, 17, you're really limited to playing other 15, 16, 17-year-olds. And, and the only way to find those players is travel a long way once you've beaten the best ones in your area. Right. Whereas in France, because you don't have a college system, all those 18 through 24-year-old players, as well as former pros and touring pros, all those players are competing in the same set of level-based events 
week after week throughout the year. And so the system is hugely generative and, and probably a good, good portion of the players from South America come to France every summer um, just to partake in such a, such a competition-rich environment. And so in the United States, we've, back in the, uh, it's a sort of confluence of events back in the 1990s, um, the USPA began to take over player development. But, but sadly, at that time, they encouraged, they basically said, if you go to college, we're going to cut you off because we don't think anybody develops in college. Mm-hmm. Now, during that time, it was, there were always people like James Blake that came through. Um, but for some reason, they sort of said, if, if you're not going to go the, the pro path early on, we're, we're not going to support you. At the same time, the Berlin Wall went down in 89. And so you had all these players from Eastern Europe, places where this became a way out. At the same time, the college coaches were not able to get the top U.S. talent. And so that vacuum created an international group of players that began coming in. And as our player development efforts over the, over those subsequent years were not bearing a lot of fruit, um, uh, it, it caused a, a very, an imbalance in international players. And without question, those same players were necessary to help a James Blake or John Isner get good enough to become pros. But there's no reason that the majority of players have to come internationally. Um, and so the, the premise behind the UTR has been if we can create local ecosystems of competition where just like in France, players were within an hour of the competition on a regular basis and they can sleep in their beds at night and not have to stay in hotels or jump on planes, well, we can begin to create the advantages of that system over here. And so the economy for parents who are saving tons of money on not having to travel away for $1,500 a weekend or a college coach having to spend $10,000 to take his team of eight players and two coaches down to Duke to play for a weekend, the, the cost savings um, and the generative capacity of these kind of systems would be enormous. And so this COVID is an interesting, um, uh, it, it's a crisis for tennis. It's absolutely putting stresses on all the clubs that we know and, and colleges. But on the other hand, if we actually saw how our system could be reworked to build um, a, a more competitive local opportunities, that's really going to respond to the college issue because college coaches are not going to be jumping on planes anymore. Well, so that's true. Yeah. The travel is going to be cut back, not just because of finance, but because of, you know, protocols at the airports. Just safety, let alone their, what are their parents going to say? You're going to take me off to Chicago this weekend or San Francisco. And um, so a lot of things are going to change. And the question is, do we, does this all have to be bad? Right. Or can we use this time of belt tightening to say, well, okay, well, let's be, let's look at the luxuries we've given into over the last 30 years and say, well, maybe we don't have to do it that way. Maybe we can provide more opportunity for people to develop locally the way it used to be before the ATP tour um, became the point changing system that our young aspiring pros had to pursue because that is it's that system that priced tennis out of reach for 90% of the people in the world. Either your parents could afford to send you chasing points in in, uh, Bulgaria or your federation did. 
And that's a pretty small slice of the population that can afford that. You know, what's, what's interesting about UTR, and, and, and I hadn't thought about it, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, is that when you really saw a, an influx of, of foreign players onto the collegiate teams? Was it at that point? Well, it's interesting. It, 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 was, it increased with the internet because when I was finishing coaching, I was hearing from 20, 25 players a week from other countries. Because, they, they, because instead of writing me a letter or sending me a postcard and saying I won the Moscow City Championships, mm-hmm. they're sending out 100 emails to 100 coaches uh, with everybody's email and make it look personal. And so, so the amount of information that I was starting to receive as a coach was enormous. And so it happened a lot of very um, proactive coaches in the 90s were starting to look elsewhere and they were starting to travel. And they were actually kind of ticked off when UTR came because they said, I used to be able to outwork my, my peers. And now I know this guy can sit in his office and see the same players that I'm seeing. So, um, so I think it's been uh, sort of a, a, an incremental way of um, more and more recruiting, more and more data. And UTR actually just filled a need for me as a college coach. If I heard from a player in Melbourne, I didn't know what winning the Whitewater uh, Junior Championships meant. Right. Uh, if, if a player had an ITF junior ranking, I didn't know whether it meant that his parents had a lot of money and he could travel all over to collect points or whether he was really that good. The data wasn't available. But with UTR, I began to say, okay, I can look at the player from Moscow or Melbourne or Miami or Minneapolis, and I can compare apples to apples. So for the first time, I had something that was time-saving, cost-saving, and was remarkably accurate Right now, it's testing as the most accurate rating system in the world. But back then, it was, it was so close, even with our limited resources, that the college coaches became entirely dependent on it. And that's why junior players know that whenever they talk to a college coach, college coach can say, well, what's your UTR? And yep. so it's literally changed the landscape. And internationally, all the ITF and players know what their UTRs and they care about it. And, and I think the sad part is that we still have systems that are so restrictive in entry that if you play ITF futures, you can proceed to the next level of pro tennis. But no matter how good a college player is, that college player in terms of the formal systems like the ITF uh, ratings or the ATP ranks, that college player never gets any credit for his or her results in college same way with a player in the French system or in the German Bundesliga, their pro league. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the new normal actually will be that we should be crediting results in any of those legitimate pathways toward moving into the pros the way it would happen in every other sport. I was a high school coach and it was just, you know, tennisrecruiting.net was, was the site that, as you say, the internet kind of created back then. And now it's moved on to UTR really. And, and a coach will say your UTR has to be a minimum of this to even have a look in at my college kind of thing. Um, 
But I'm going to ask you uh, a couple of selfish questions because I have an 11 year old and, and I'm one of those junior parents of a junior player. And when first question I have for you is when do you normally expect the contact to be made by a player to you? And secondly, um, your viewpoint on when Europeans are coming over and you're and, and an American junior is competing against those Europeans, having made the contact and all that with the coaches, it seems that uh, a lot of Americans are being told to stay back in eighth grade and get a year under their belt uh, so that they, because the European players tend to be older, they, they are homeschooled and they can not fudge, but they can say they graduated at a certain date and they, and they're playing, I think in tennis NCAA rules, you have to play within six months of graduating high school. But what are those, right. those two points you wanted to, I wanted you to talk about and in a selfish way is when, when to have contact with the coach and, and, and whether to stay back in eighth grade. Sure. So there, so let's see if we can um, tease this apart a little bit. One is the, the NCAA is pretty good about finding out when a person has started their high school. So <clears throat> The rule basically says that within four years of the time that you and your peers started high school, you have four years plus that six months before you, your clock begins ticking. And so if you're not in school playing, you would lose a year of eligibility and, and you would have to spend a year in residence before you could play. So it's, it's pretty, pretty tough penalty if you have competed after, after that time. Okay. And so, um, so the idea of staying out, uh, sort of repeating your, your, let's see, your, yeah, nine, 10, 11, 12. So repeating your eighth grade year, it's a, there is a certain strategy to it. It says, if I don't begin my ninth grade, I don't have to be in, um, college quite as soon. So right. I have a little more time to develop where, where it hurts kids is you get a precocious kid that might've skipped a grade. And then he might be like, he might like to graduate from high school a year early and go play on the tour. Well, he can't do it. And he's being actually penalized for being precocious. And so there are some inequities here that really don't serve the players well. We, for instance, at Harvard used to have people that weren't good enough to make our team initially, or they wanted to build, spend a year building up their academic portfolio. Mm -hmm. And they would come in and they would be a year wiser. I mean, I, I often think the kids start college too early. They're just not ready emotionally to understand the huge opportunities there are. So, um, so I think this rule is, is um, it's an interesting one and, and it has a number of drawbacks, but the intention was, just as you said, for us to create more of an even playing field for American players so that they, couldn't have, they didn't have to compete against someone who had played on the pro tour for three years and comes into college at, you know, 23. Mm-hmm. And now you're having a 17 or 18 year old boy or girl playing against 23 year old player. And uh, we know that that happens in hockey and the coaches look at the tennis rule and they say, well, that's a pretty good rule. Now that, that makes a lot of sense. Create a much more even playing field. So all of these rules are approximations to try to get to a better world. I think mm-hmm. one of the interesting rules that you haven't brought up yet is the juniors can now take up to $10,000 worth of prize money each year without even keeping receipts. And that wow. was a wonderful recognition that tennis is a very expensive meter that begins January 1st and goes to December 31st. 
and that in order to be a level, a player of a high enough level to win that kind of money, you're spending much more than that. And so instead of judging a person as a pro because they have accepted money, it's much better to say, well, the only real pros are the people who can actually make money. And we know that collegians and juniors are not making money. And if mm -hmm. they are making money, they're going to turn pro anyway, because they don't, they don't want to turn down the kind of revenue that they can make at the U.S. Open. So that, that actually was a good rule and, um, uh, and has made it possible even for college players to win, to earn their earn prize money in an event and not have to um, and be able to offset their expenses throughout an entire year. So those are all major moves forward that have really improved opportunity for people. And, and contact from a, for an initial junior, when do you usually? Yeah, good question. Thanks. So contact, um, I think that there are two tiers of things. One is that most, you can contact a coach anytime. That coach can't reply to you formally mm -hmm. until I think it's after your, after the summer after your sophomore year. Right. But now with UTR, you can actually sign up to follow a program. If I want to sign up and follow the Harvard team, I just go on myutr.com and I look up Harvard and I list myself as a follower. And now I basically have told the coach, hey, I'm interested in your program. And you can actually put in your academics like it used to be only tennis recruiting that would do it. But now you can put in your academics and the name of your coach. And if a college coach wants to reach out to your your junior coach, that's perfectly legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, and so while the coach can't respond to you as a recruit directly, um, he can find out more information about you. Now, the, 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 uh, the layered effect is that most kids are aspiring to play at a program where the coach might not be that interested. And so why isn't that coach writing me back? I've written him 10 emails. Well, you sort of have to judge if you're getting no communication back, um, you want to say, am I really competitive for that program? Because if you are competitive for the program, pretty much any coach is going to roll out the red carpet for you. Um, if he says, boy, this person's going to play number three on my team and I'm, I'm going to be on his doorstep tomorrow morning. And so, um, so what UTR has done, and I don't mean to make this a, a commercial for UTR, but we have something, a college fit where a place, person can go in and say, here's my UTR level. Um, and if I wanted to play in the top, top two, top three, top four, top five, top six, what colleges could I actually do that in? And it will spill out in a matter of seconds and that's free to everybody. So um, it's made it a lot more, a lot better for kids to be able to find a spot. Um, but you have to remember that college coaches are usually coaching because they love to be on court, not because they love to answer emails. And some coaches are really good at communication and some guys are just terrible. And so <clears throat> you want to try to create a personal relationship and write to the person, ideally not have your parents do the talking for you <laughs> because we all joke about that as coaches, you know, it's amazing how many parents want to speak for their kids, even though their kids are young adults. And so, so we, we, we have certain first impressions when a parent just can't stay out of it. And on the other hand, we get a very nice impression of a person who's proactive and he writes a respectful email and, and he doesn't say um, and he doesn't write to me and then and then say you know I've 
uh, put in the heading the Princeton coach's name. You know, it's like you have to be careful with your with your technology these days. And so, uh, so there are ways to communicate, and of course, it's 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 multiplied the number of correspondences that we all have. Yeah, so course. UTR becomes a bit of a shorthand. It's interesting. I I find the UTR, um, and I, I had I don't play much in the way of tournaments nowadays, but last summer we had a, uh, a PTM graduate who took the UTR system, you know, by the horns and, and, and created a, a weekly round Robin that was a UTR based round Robin at our summer country club. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had the high school kids doing it and it was fantastic because it really focused them. They could see, you know, their results going up online and, uh, and one week we had seven players. And so the, the, this PTM graduate asked me to play as, as the eighth. And I went out and had to, you know, clean clocks because I didn't want my UTR to drop. Yeah. <laughs> so it, <laughs> and you're not still competitive, I can see. <laughs> it, it, I'm not competitive, but it does make every match count, which, yes. you know, when you're playing uh, collegiately or even high, at a high school level or even at a club level now, if that club is UTR uh, rated, um, it, it makes it very intense, but also I think it does help to focus a player's mind on the court. I, I absolutely think you're right. And actually, <clears throat> one of the things that I've always loved about it is that <clears throat> we tend to, when you're younger, you tend to be much more focused on outcome than process. Right. And, <clears throat> and when for the last, we've used a points per round reward system in USDA age-based events for the last, since maybe somewhere in the early 90s. <clears throat> and kids have gotten used to sort of chasing the outcome, the points, almost like a sugar addiction. And, and so they tend to judge, well, what kind of event do I want to play? Instead of saying, what kind of event do I need to play in order to test myself fairly against people both a little, little, that I'm a little better than and a little worse than, that's a kind of level-based opportunity that will let me get involved in the process of getting better as opposed to how do I find the, the tournament that I can get the most number of points and be the best player in the tournament. And so in, in a way it kind of crowds out what I believe is the kind of intrinsic motivation that we all used to have. Like I couldn't wait to play more. And when I talk to people who supported points per round system, they really say for two reasons. One is, it makes the players play more. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was very strange to take something that should be a love of the game and try to force players to play more. And secondly, from an administrative point of view, um, it ends the headaches of parents calling you and complaining about their child's rating. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and so I think that we have gotten much too much into the administration of the business of tennis um, from an administrative point of view rather than from a consumer's point of view. I think we've created a very expensive junior system where players have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to travel away from home when they could be getting good competition closer to home. Um, and, and, and it's made it very difficult, but it all because you have to chase points in a certain age category to, to get to the national. Right. And I think that the kids that would normally have, uh, it's a little bit, Ed, the way, um, you know, if your son or your daughter gets focused on getting A's, but they're not really learning how to be a student. 
And I think there are a lot of tennis players out there that are not really learning to be a multidimensional tennis player that, that can problem solve and make good decisions out there as much as they're chasing points. And I think that that kind of external motivation often crowds out uh, an intrinsic motivation in a player. And I think that's actually handicapped American players. Um, whereas in France, these kids are, are not playing for points. They're simply going to see how do I, how do I earn the ability to advance to the next level? And if I earn my way to the next level, then I get to play someone who is more challenging. And that's really player development in the way it's supposed to be. It's a healthy mix of playing down, playing even, and playing up. And every good coach really knows that that's the only way to get better. And, and players get back to the real responsibility of player development. If I get knocked on my can, um, I have to get up and I have to go to my coach and say, coach, I, I, this guy's stepping around and hitting forehands. Every time I hit my backhand down the middle, he hits a forehand away. And the coach says, well, have you thought about working on your backhand down the line? And so players actually begin to get into the process of what tools do I need to be a good student or to be a good player rather than just how do I get the next set of points? Right. And, and, and in terms of player development, to take that on another level, as a, as a college coach, being one of the best in the land, Dave, how do you develop a player or how do you maybe discuss with their parents and the player that they'll develop at college rather than going on a tour. Because some, some people will look at college, some players will look at college and say, well, you know, that coach might keep me at number three and develop someone to go to one and two, and I'll just stay at number three and bank, bank you know, be the banker at number three. How do you yeah. approach a, a player and a, and a parent that is worried about that? That's, I think that's a terrific question, Ed. Um, <clears throat> because... Uh, and let me just go back into the concept of development. So if I put a player, the difference between a college match and a tournament is that the tournament affords a player the ability to have what we would call a breakthrough experience. In the same way that Coco Goff broke through at Wimbledon last year, she, she qualified for the event and then she won several matches. She beat Venus in the, in the first round. And then she went on and she became a different player emotionally and physically at the end of that. That was a breakthrough experience. If I have a player that plays number five week after week for me at Harvard, that player is never going to experience that breakthrough in confidence. He may win a lot of matches, but he's not getting a chance to, to stretch his wings out against better players. And the college rules or the high school rules prevent me as a coach from saying my number five player is on a, on a roar here. I'm going to put him up to number two this weekend and just see how he does. Mm -hmm. Well, that's considered illegal and it's called stacking. And so as a college coach, what we often tried to do was put our players into other experiences in addition to the team format. So lots of us put together fall tournaments where um, we would be able to give our players a chance to test their mettle against better and better players. And in certain ways, that's why college uh, coaches are still putting on, they're buying very expensive futures tournaments to put on. It's become a recruiting advantage, so it's created an arms race. That's not really good for the game. But in terms of giving those players more challenges, well, that's a good thing. And so um, I actually would love to see our college players 
more integrated with our aspiring young pros and our top juniors. Because then, like France, we would be able to create an environment where it's a unified pathway and our college players don't get stuck playing at number five. They do for a certain season and just the way they do in the Bundesliga and, or, the, or, the, or the French system when they play league matches for a, a month in the spring. Well, sure, you can do that for a while and it's really fun and NCAA competition is really exciting to play on a team. But for your bread and butter developmental experience, tournaments are the way to go because of that breakthrough capacity and the ability to keep challenging yourself at incrementally better levels. And that's the process of becoming a player. So that as a college coach that we really tried to do that throughout the fall. And then, and then we tried to get the players to buy into this is what it means to be a team player in the spring. And Wait, it wasn't always easy. Yeah. Yeah. And you've had great players. And, and unfortunately I've lost to several of them. Uh, I was looking yeah. back at my history and I, I remember I came back one year to play my club doubles and this guy named Greg Tebby came out and served up the first game. I was like, who's this new member? Um, wonderful yeah. player. And I've lost to Tori Kayam and a member guests uh, sure. year. Um, and you've had James Blake, but is there somebody out there that you, that you think of now that you, you're really proud of as uh, having been his coach? Is there somebody that you could, you know, nod well, and say, I saw him so, grow a lot? Yeah. Well, there, there are many, many people like that, most of whom you wouldn't have heard of. Exactly. Because, because that, it seems to me that the big opportunity that we have is that <clears throat> 99 or 4,400% of the players will never go on to be champions. And so if that's the only reason the parents and coaches are spending time and money um, on tennis, <clears throat> 99, 4,400% of those people would be failures. So clearly we, we stick with tennis because it yields benefits. It yields muscles of character if we do it properly, uh, muscles of persistence and perseverance and um, fairness. Uh, and so, so I, I really think that of course, I'm proud of James Blake, but mm -hmm. truth be told, James Blake was a superstar athlete who was going to get better anywhere. He would have been a champion in any, any program, and I hope I helped him some, but the real measure I think of a coach is not can you help the super talented person, but can you help the player that might not have made your lineup otherwise was a pretty good athlete, but not a superstar. And did you show them a way to maximize his or her talents that caused them to be able to get the highest yield out of their really strong mind or really quick, or could they be a great counter puncher? And, and that to me is the, is the gift of coaching. It's a, it's an art, not a science. And the players, the coaches who can develop people that come with a very varied palette of skills, those are the coaches I really put my money on, not the coach who says, this is the way to play and it's my way or the highway. And this is the kind of player I turn out. And so, um, <clears throat> so there are lots of players. They've gone on to make wonderful contributions. I have a guy who's, um, is, uh, is, has been the nonprofit CEO, um, person of the year for time magazine. And, you know, he, he, he didn't even start after his first year, but was he the kind of quality person that you, you, you know, you'd love to have your daughter meet or anybody else? Absolutely. And we've got 
load to people. So it, it goes back to that original premise. Are we bringing people to Harvard that we'll be proud of, or are we just trying to make our tennis team better? And if that's our objective, that's a pretty short-sighted goal, and you can do it, but I don't think it ever makes you feel really proud. Dave, it's been great having on the podcast. Uh, wise words from somebody who has been at the top of their field for, for many, many years, and I really enjoyed getting to know you and, and have this conversation. And thank you so much for your time. Well, it's a pleasure. Ed, and thanks very much for all you're trying to do for tennis too. I've enjoyed your articles. I would encourage all your listeners to, to read them because I think you hit on some really, really important topics in the, in the game. And uh, I hope together we can all continue to work to, to build a better tennis. But thanks well, for having me. Well, thank you so much and uh, take care. Great. All the best. Thank you for listening to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm your host, Ed Shanahan, and it's a pleasure bringing you every week news and views and great guests from our tennis and fitness industry. You can always reach me at BeyondTheBaselines at gmail.com or by phone at the office on 508-538-1288. Please do visit our website, BeyondTheBaselines.com. And on our site, there's a link to our Patreon page, which has even more information for you and your club and your facility in our wonderful industry. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.